You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. So good to be online once again with you here this week and uh, anxiously awaiting, not long from now, the opportunity for you to be in this room here together. Uh, If you got a Bible with you this week, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We are continuing in our journey in the study of the book of Romans. Last week, we kicked this off by kind of looking at a quick overview of the book of Romans and uh, specifically drilling down in verses one through seven and looking at some of the foundations of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, this, this beautiful letter that the Apostle Paul penned to the church in Rome to, to uphold and display the gospel of Jesus Christ like a diamond with multiple facets being turned chapter by chapter, looking at every aspect of the power of God to save. It's a beautiful book. Excited to be in with you. This week, we're going to be in verses 8 through 17 of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, Verses 8 through 17, Paul is going to begin now speaking to the immediate circumstance of this letter and why it is he wrote it in the first place. Obviously, the primary reason why Paul wrote the letter to the, to the Romans was to defend the nature of the gospel and a salvation that comes by grace through faith and not by our works. That's the primary reason. But there is a secondary reason why Paul penned this letter. Here And uh, it's because the Christians who were in Rome were concerned about why it is at this point, the Apostle Paul had not visited Rome ever. And the, uh, the, the thought is, and here's the deal, Paul at this time, you got to remember, is he's writing this letter from the city of Corinth uh, there in Greece. He is on his third missionary journey. And at this point in Paul's journeys, he has been all over the world, the Roman world, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's been through Galatia and Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. He was in Macedonia and in Greece, and uh, yet in all his journeys of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he had never been to Rome at this point. And the Romans, uh, Christians, had wondered why. Why is it Paul had not come? And what you're going to see is there's two implicit reasons that we're going to pull out of this text for for why we feel the Romans thought that Paul didn't come to Rome at this point. Number one is that surely he doesn't care about them. Maybe it's Paul doesn't love the Romans like he loves the people in the other cities. He spent all that time in Galatia and now in Greece, several trips looping through those areas, and he, and he hadn't been to Rome. But clearly he, he cares more for those people than he does for us. And that's one of the reasons that the Christians of Rome felt like maybe Paul hasn't been there. But there's a second reason as well, and that is maybe Paul's afraid. Maybe Paul's afraid or even embarrassed to bring the gospel to Rome. You remember at this time, Rome is the, it's the center of the world. It's it's the capital of the Roman empire. It's where all the intellectuals and the elites and the Roman officials, including the emperor Nero himself, who is one of the greatest persecutors of the Christian faith. So certainly that's probably why Paul didn't want to come to Rome. He, he was afraid to bring the gospel here and, and suffer in this place. He was maybe embarrassed even or ashamed to bring the gospel into this elite city. And so what Paul is going to do in verses 8 through 17 is he's going to address those two accusations, that he doesn't love them and that he's afraid. And we're going to dive into this first one here 
of the accusation that Paul doesn't doesn't love the, the Roman Christians or doesn't care for them. And I want you to just listen as we work our way through these first few verses here and see if this sounds like a shepherd who doesn't care for his sheep. You see this starting in verse eight. Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So first of all, Paul's thankful. He, he is thankful for these Christians. Even though he's never been to Rome before, he's heard about their faith. The whole world has heard about the faith of these Christians in Rome. And so Paul thanks God for them. But not only that, he's not only thankful, notice he's prayerful in verse nine, when he says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. Paul is prayerful for these people. He is on his face daily interceding, begging God for God's favor to continue to remain on these Christians in Rome. So he's thankful, he's prayerful, but also at the end of verse 10, he's desirous to be with them. The end of verse 10, he says, I'm I'm asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. His desire is to be with them. He, he longs to be there in person with them. And here's why. It's in verse 11. Because I long to see you, that, my, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What that means is Paul wants to take his spiritual gift, probably that of teaching, that of exhortation, and he wants to come to Rome so that he can help build up and strengthen these Christians in their faith all the more so that this body can be better encouraged and better equipped for the ministry that God has called them to. And the result of that, if Paul were able to do that, you see this in verse 12, is that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. Paul says, if I were able to be with, the, with there with you in person, man, there is a mutual edification that can take place, almost like this live stream, how I long that you are in this room with me so I could see your faces versus looking at this camera right now. Because if you are here together, we can encourage one another in this text, me with you and you with me. So Paul's longing for right here where he could, his faith could be encouraged and their faith could be encouraged. And so the question is, man, you get done reading these verses right here up to verse 12 at this point, man, does this sound like a guy who doesn't care for these people? Does this sound like a shepherd who does not love these sheep? Not at all. Y'all, this is the heart of a minister that we see right here in this text. This is the way that we should feel about the people who have been entrusted to us in discipleship. Our delight is to be with one another so that we can mutually strengthen one another to grow in our faith in Jesus Christ so we might be better encouraged and equipped for the ministry that he's called us to. This is the joy of Christian ministry. And I think there's an important lesson here in these first few verses uh, for us to learn. And that is about assuming that our definitions of care are the only true metrics by which we will measure whether we feel somebody really loves us and cares for us or not. See, these, these Roman Christians, they assumed wrongly 
that Paul didn't love them because he wasn't with them in person. They had their definition of what care looked like, and Paul was falling short of that definition for them, and their assumption was he must not love them, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And I think for me, what I've learned in so many ways in both my personal ministry as well as my pastoral ministry is just even my own misplaced expectations of others around me and what I demand from them or what I expect from other people that determines whether I feel they love me or not. And I have had many misplaced expectations in my 20 years of Christian ministry. But I can also tell you that from a pastoral point on this side, I've also experienced what it's like to oversee large groups and large congregations of God's saints and with many expectations and demands on me that I just have no way of fulfilling. And for many people that might be mistranslated as I don't care for them or I don't love them, when in reality there are, there are certain constraints that are outside of our control sometimes that, that we have to trust the good in and not assume the worst in. It doesn't mean that those people don't love and care for me, and it doesn't mean that I don't love and care for them. Sometimes there are these unavoidable constraints, and we have to assume the best of one another. But the truth is, Paul loves these people. He's thankful for them. He's prayerful for them. He's desirous to be with them right here. And so the question is then, okay, if that's true, if you really do care for us, if you really do love us, then why haven't you come? Is it because maybe you're just afraid to come to Rome? Is it, is it that you're maybe somehow embarrassed to preach the gospel here versus all those other places that you've been? And so Paul now addresses this second accusation, starting in verse 13. He says this, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. And notice in parentheses there, he says, but thus far I have been prevented. And so the question is, what is it that has prevented Paul? He, he's tried to come see them. He's actually planned to come see them, but he has been prevented. What is it that has hindered Paul from coming to Rome? And you're not going to see the answer here in chapter one. However, at the end of the book of Romans, Paul is going to let them know exactly what it was that has prevented them. Hold your place here in Romans chapter one and flip over with me to chapter 15. In chapter 15, you're going to see why it is that the apostle Paul was prevented in coming to visit Rome. And you see this starting in verse 20 of chapter 15. Paul says this, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not only uh, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, and he quotes Isaiah 52 here, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And Paul says in verse 22, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul says, the reason that I haven't come to Rome yet is because God actually chose for me to go to places where the gospel of Jesus has not yet been preached. God has called me not to be a locally anchored 
church pastor in one city, but God has called me to be a worldwide evangelist of the gospel, going to specific regions where people were completely unreached with the message of Jesus Christ. So the truth is, is Rome had already been reached. And we know this because after the persecution and murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that persecution set in in Jerusalem and the Christians in Jerusalem scattered and they took off to other regions of the globe. Many of them resettled back in their homeland of Rome. And when they did, they established a gospel presence and they established a church there in Rome, which is why Paul says, even though I've never been there, I've heard about y'all. I've heard about your faith there and I've longed to come to see you. But there's already believers there. You actually have the message of Jesus in that place. There are other cities in this world. There are other regions in this world where they've never heard of Jesus. And God has set me apart specifically to go reach them. And Paul knows that calling, that calling from God is to go to those who don't have what the Romans had. Now, church, don't miss this. It's a beautiful point here. This is how you know, by the way, when you are in step with the Spirit of God is when you're able to say no to things you want to do in order to say yes to the things you know you're called to do. And that's exactly what Paul felt right here. Right now, by the way, in our world today, there are over 16,000 people groups, unique people groups on the face of this earth who have never heard of the message of Jesus Christ. 16,000 people groups, 6,700 of those have never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. That makes up about 42% of the world's population in what we call kind of the, the, the longitude and latitude window of the 1040 window. Most of those lie in there. They've never heard of the name Jesus. They have no access to a local church. They have no access to another Christian around them. They've never heard of Jesus. These unreached people groups. That's crazy to think about, by the way, that in our technologically connected age that we live in with so much advancements around us, there are still that many people who still have never heard of the name Jesus. Now that should break our hearts. That should compel us. That should burden us to want to reach them. And biblically speaking, here's what we know. Every single one of us as Christians, every single one of us have been called and are responsible to pray, to give, and to send so that those 6,700 unique people groups can be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we also know this, biblically speaking, that only some of us have actually been called to go. All of us play a role in it. It's a matter of which, but only some have been called to go. And I just want to pause right here and say, if, if in any sense you feel that burden to want to reach those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you feel a unique burden that God actually might be calling you not to just pray, send, or give, but to actually go, oh, we would love to help come around you. Whether it's joining folks like the Childresses or the Megleys or the Dakers, and I can go on and on of, of couples and singles and families who have been sent from this church to go reach those unreached people groups. Man, we would love to help come around you and help get you ready and, and help send you to go reach those folks. You just reach out to some folks on our mobilization team here at Northway, and man, we will get you trained and sent out. But here's what Paul is saying right now. Paul is saying, my calling is not to build on another man's foundation. You know whose calling that is? It's mine. 
I, I do feel called by God to build on others' foundations. Like God has called me here to anchor in Dallas, Texas, to shepherd Northway Church, and the people are here to help train and equip and send those folks in the long legacy of the other who, others who have gone before me to, to build this work here, and I get to continue on that work of training and sending and equipping. That's my role. That's my call. But if Paul were here today, Paul were here today, we're going to take a time out for just a second to reboot. Uh, for those watching live, we're going to have technical difficulties time to time. We had a reboot. That was a quicker one this time. Back in it. We're right here. Romans at the end of 15 here. But saying is, Paul's job, if he were today, Paul feels his job would not to be anchored here in Dallas shepherding this crew. His job is to go reach those 6,700 folks who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his role. That's why Paul hasn't been to Rome at this point. And it's not because he doesn't love them. And it's not because he's ashamed or embarrassed. And that's the next thing they're going to speak to is going, okay, you, you feel called to do that, but are you afraid to come to Rome? Are you embarrassed? Are you ashamed to preach before the people that are here? I want you to go back to chapter one here in the book of Romans. We'll pick back up in verse 14. Paul's going to speak to this. And he says this in verse 14, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now that's interesting here. Paul is speaking again to all those unreached people groups that he's going to. Paul is sharing now the scope of who he's been called to reach. And it's not just one type of group within those unreached people groups, but it's all kinds. And he speaks to a juxtaposition between the Greeks and the barbarians. Barbarians was actually um, a nickname given, given to a certain kind of uneducated group of people. In fact, the word barbarian in Greek is, is known as an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like it spells. If you were to transliterate it, it would just literally be ba, 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 ba. It's a slang word, again, used to describe in that day the uneducated from the educated, those who could not speak properly. And so we, would we might translate it babbling idiots, which just sounds awful. It sounds like something Michael Scott would say from the office. But nonetheless, this was a common way of distinguishing between the, the uneducated hill dwellers, so to speak, on the outlying areas of the city, and then the intellectual educated Greeks within the urban core. And Paul says, in case you're wondering, who God has called me to reach, who God has called me to preach the gospel to. It is both the educated and the uneducated, the foolish and the wise, the rural and the urban, whether it's the Appalachian Hills or it's Capitol Hill. God has called me to reach both for the name of Jesus Christ. And so in light of that, in verse 15, Paul's going to say, no, I'm not afraid. I'm actually eager to preach to him. I would love to come to Rome. I would love to stand before Nero. I would love to stand before his imperial guard and all the intellectual elites and the Senate. And I would love to declare the name of Jesus Christ to them and see folks get saved. Of course I would. Now in verse 16, here's why he's so eager. And pay attention to this. This is huge. It's not because he has so much confidence in himself or in his own preaching ability that he's eager to get to Rome. No, his confidence is in something completely different. He says in verse 16, and again, these next two verses serve as the theme of this whole book. When Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. For it is 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Paul says, and again, we saw this last week, that what, what it is that, that they need the most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I am not afraid to come preach this gospel in Rome. And again, not because he's nervous because he's going to stand before the bigwigs, not before he's nervous because of his lack of ability to articulate the gospel smoothly. He's not nervous because of his lack of training and philosophic rhetoric and debates. If the power of God to save is predicated upon all those things, we would all be terrified to stand before anybody of that nature. For Paul, his confidence isn't in those things. It is God's power through God's message of God's son. That is where Paul finds his confidence. The power to save anyone, whether first to the Jews, because they were the first ones to receive the promises of God about the savior who would come, or then later to the Gentiles who would be grafted into those promises, whether it's to anyone, the power to save them is not rooted in Paul's ability. It's rooted in God's ability. And that he is not ashamed. And notice why is this so true? Because again, in verse 17, the good news of Jesus's sufficient work on the cross is that it provides the one thing that man must have that religion longs to give him, but simply cannot. And that is the righteousness of God. You see this in verse 17, for in it, if you were to circle the word it, you can go back to verse 16, circle the word gospel. That's what he's talking about. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we saw this again last week, that what sinful man needs in order to stand eternally in the presence of our holy God is righteousness. And what righteousness is, is the declared innocence and removal of all sin and guilt that equates or matches the very holiness of God. And that last piece there is significant. It's not just our own declared innocence or removal of sin and guilt, but one that is in accordance with the holiness of God. Every one of us are looking for a righteousness of, of our own. Every one of us wants to be declared innocent of all crimes. Every one of us wants to have our consciences cleansed and the, the stain of sin and guilt removed from us. We all long for that. We all go looking for that. The problem is, is that we seek to attain that kind of righteousness through our own moral behavior or our own justifying self-righteousness, self-deeds. But we have to understand if, if that's your standard is by comparing your righteousness to simply the righteousness of everybody else's, that's one thing. But we're talking about the holiness and the righteousness of God. And when we compare against that, we all fall short of that righteousness and that we'll never attain it on our own. But that is the good news. That's the gospel that Paul is speaking of here of Jesus Christ is that God knew that we could not climb our way to him through a righteousness of our own. So he came down to us. 
and he revealed it. That's what Paul says there in verse 70. He, the revelation of his righteousness. It is the, it is the manifesting. It's the unveiling. God brought it to us. We didn't have to go bring ours to him. He brought his to us and unveiled it to us. And it is obtained not by works, but it's obtained through faith, trusting in it. And, and that phrase, by the way, faith for faith there in verse 17, literally better translated faith to faith, means that from beginning to end, this salvation will come by faith. There never was a period of time when salvation was by works. And you go, wait a minute, I, I thought that's what the Old Testament was. Didn't the mandate for the Old Testament that you would work for your salvation and then the New Testament, it's faith and grace? No, it's always been by faith. The Old Testament, any works that were there were simply a shadow to show you you couldn't do it. And it was a testimony of a greater grace that would come. And that's why Paul quotes from the Old Testament, from Habakkuk, that those who are truly righteous, they will only live because they are trusting in God, not themselves. Like we get the righteousness of God based on Jesus's works, not on ours. And therefore, the power of the gospel is not in our own doing, but in God who has saved us by his grace through faith in the work of Jesus, trusting in his work and his righteousness. Church, if I were to stop right now and I were to ask you, what is it that declares you innocent before God? What is it that allows you to stand one day in the very presence of God? If you start listing for me anything other than what God has done for you, and instead you list what you have done for God, it is the clearest indication that you are not living by faith, you are living by works. And that is no salvation. That is death. Only a faith in Jesus's work for you is what will declare you righteous and allow you to stand before God's holy presence. And because that and that alone is how God saves people, that is why Paul is unashamed to go preach that message anywhere that he goes, whether it's in the hills of Galatia or on the marbled streets of Rome. Can I just encourage us just for a moment here as we kind of land this plane, especially to the church, to believers right now who are listening to this, who might be intimidated or discouraged from boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because you feel you just don't have enough articulation or you don't have enough educational training in order to do so, or you're intimidated by the very audience that you might sit in front of. You need to hear this clearly from what Paul has communicated in this text. God is not dependent upon your intellectual acumen in order to save your lost neighbor. God is not dependent upon your slick or persuasive speech in order to break through the calloused heart of your coworker. If God was dependent upon our Christian pedigrees, upon our seminary doctorates, if, if, God, was, if, if God was dependent upon our, our trained abilities um, in, in, in speech and debate, then God would have never chosen a bunch of blue-collar, untrained fishermen from Galilee to bear this message to the entire world. He would have picked a senate in Rome to do so, but he didn't. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You have to trust in the one who is the smartest in the room, and that is God himself, and be willing to boldly proclaim 
that the same grace that has come for you, for you is the same grace that is available for them. Paul's message was simple. Paul didn't try to overcomplicate this thing. Just as he said to the Corinthians when he was in Corinth, by the way, the place that he wrote this letter from, listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. If Paul was afraid to go to any city, by the way, it was Corinth. That was a place he was terrified to go. And I was there in fear and weakness and trembling. And he says, my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. I wasn't there espousing my philosophy degree from college. No, instead, I was there as a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. What saved you, Corinthians, wasn't my degree in debate. What saved you was the Holy Spirit invading your heart with a simple message about Christ and him crucified, demonstrating his strength to save you. And church, we need to hear that. When you're standing before your atheist biology professor and you're thinking, oh, if only Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis was here right now, they'd know what to say. You need to understand All you need to believe is the message of Christ and him crucified and the power that is packed within that message to save. And then you need a willingness to just be faithful to proclaim it. I've shared many stories about how this has been evidence true in my life. I remember when I was in my fraternity in college and I was part of Campus Crusade for Christ, we were out on the the streets in front of the dorms sharing our faith with just crazy strangers on campus. And I remember sitting in front of this one group of a bunch of of guys and girls sitting there and I'm sharing the gospel with them and I'm just kind of walking through my little outline about how Jesus came for them. And all of a sudden this one girl just starts kind of spouting off to me, challenging me on a bunch of inconsistencies or perceived inconsistencies in the Bible. What about God and the slaying of the innocents in the Old Testament? And what, what about God saving some and not others? And, and you know, what about this problem of, of these people? And, and I just remember sitting there going, oh my gosh, I'm in over my skis. I have no idea what to say to this girl right now. And I was like, Jesus loves you, you know? And I'm just, I'm just sharing this basic about the truth of God sent his son for you because he loves you and you're a sinner and you need it. And I just walked away from that feeling like I am so overwhelmed I probably need many more years of training. I had a lot of zeal. I had no knowledge. And I left that thinking I was an utter failure. And you know what's crazy? About 15 years later, 2011, I'm a campus pastor at the Village Church in Flower Mound. And it's after one of the services. And everybody's kind of filing out, heading home for the day. And this one girl comes up to me and she goes, hey, Shay, do you remember me? And I was thinking, oh God, no, I don't, I don't know who this is. I don't, know, I don't know how I'm supposed to remember them. She said, I was one of the girls that was sitting there arguing with you in front of Kerr Hall back when we were in college. And the Lord used that gospel presentation that you shared with me to lead me to him. And I remember in that moment just being utterly dumbfounded by the amazing power of God. I remember that situation and I remember that girl and I remember the fact that I felt like the power to save her had to be in my 
perfect articulation and knowledge and not in the simple truth that God sent his son to come redeem her. And that was enough to save her. So church, may we be encouraged, maybe run. And, and I want to also say at the same time, I'm not trying to downplay training and equipping. Man, I'm all about that. It's one of my favorite things about being a part of the local church. And, and we've got so many opportunities here at Northway to help train you to, to better understand your Bible, to better articulate the gospel. It could be part of our City Not Forsaken class here this fall. It could be also in our biblical counseling class. We will train and equip you how to better steward the message of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, you have to understand faith in the power of God to save has got to precede our confidence in our own knowledge and ability to present it. You know what's ironic in this whole thing is for Paul being accused of being afraid to go to Rome, he would eventually go to Rome. You know that? Not long after Paul wrote these words, he would actually go to Rome, only not of his own free will, but in chains. And he would be imprisoned in Rome and God would sovereignly use the prison system to give him a platform to speak to the highest court in the land, the imperial guard of Rome, all the way up to Nero. And in that moment of human weakness, Paul did not shrink back from declaring the good news. And in one of Paul's final letters that he wrote before he was executed, listen to these words from Philippians chapter one. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more emboldened to speak the word without fear. Y'all, Paul says, oh yeah, the whole Roman imperial guard all the way up to Nero heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the brothers and sisters that are there in Rome heard about that and it even empowered them all the more to take the simple message of the truth of Jesus Christ and go proclaim it all the more. And this is what I want us to see, church, here at Northway, this is what we are about. The unashamed power of the gospel to save that we wouldn't put our trust in any lesser thing but the Spirit of God and the message of Jesus Christ. And we would be faithful witnesses to herald it here in the city of Dallas all the way to the ends of the earth for his glory and for our good. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for this message here at the outset of the book of Romans, for the encouragement for us as believers who find ourselves here, even in the city of Dallas, in an urban core with many intellectual elites, often intimidated by our co-workers and our neighbors and even family members who are hostile to you, feeling that if only we had more knowledge, if only we had more articulation, but really what we need is more unashamed confidence in you, God. Would you empower us, awaken us as your church, to take the message of Jesus Christ and unashamedly deliver it to all those in our spheres of influence. That God, you might take this message even from Northway here in Dallas all the way to the ends of the earth to those 6,700 unreached people groups, that they too could know Jesus and him crucified, that they may have taste, taste eternal life. God, we pray this for the glory of your son's name, for the good of your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.